Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Collaboration, that word seems to be everywhere. And ultimately, collaboration is how we really solve the biggest problems. It's how we innovate. It's how we serve customers. And ultimately, I suspect it's how we get many of our great things done. Now, at the same time, collaboration consumes precious time. All those meetings, all those relationships to build, all those issues to follow up with afterwards, all the relationships to repair, the tensions to build, to to calm down, and so forth. And it adds to the overload that all of us are feeling even before the pandemic. So the question for the day is how do you balance the competing demands of the overload as well as the benefits you get from collaboration? And more importantly, how do you think about buying back time, something I think everybody would like to have? And if you do get back time, what are you supposed to do with it? So my guest today is Rob Cross. He's the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College, and he's a renowned thinker, writer, and speaker who's it's often described as category defying ideas. It's true. They're really seminal work, really important work that has influenced the fields in organizational design, change, collaboration, teams, agility, innovation, and talent optimization. We should add to that networking, networking analysis, building networks. He's the co-founder and research director of the, the Connected Commons Business Consortium. And he's the author of a book we're talking about today, Beyond Collaboration Overload, How to Work Smarter, Get Ahead, and Restore Your Well-Being. That is one of six books that he has authored. Harvard Business Review articles are included as well, and they all have great practical approaches to enhancing collaboration. One of the ones that I think is particularly powerful is called The Hidden Power of Social Networks. Rob, it's with pleasure. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's a treat to be here. (laughs) Well, it's a treat to have you because your insights on all of this, all of that body of work and its implications for organizations, for how we work, for our networks, for our productivity, for our humanity in many ways, I think are enormous. So I'm delighted. But I have to start. Why? Why does this work matter to you? What's the problem you've been trying to solve? That's a really great question. So I started uh, literally 23, 24 years ago with this idea of, gosh, if we could see how people were collaborating and using a technique I called organizational network analysis uh, that actually maps, you know, who's interacting with whom to get work done inside an organization. Um, and, and at that point in time, it was a really novel idea that work is happening in this informal web and um, something that's really taken hold over the, the you know, past two decades in a pretty significant way. But what I saw as I worked with all these organizations, we've applied these analytics over 300 organizations at this point. We've 
run them over a thousand times because a lot of times we're doing pre and post and groups ranging from a couple thousand to 80, 90,000 if we're looking at large scale organizational changes or things like that. What I could see in the work of the consortium I run is starting about 15 years ago, the collaborative intensity and the collaborative footprint of work was rising inexorably, right? And it's a product of all these efforts we've we've made to take uh, hierarchy out of formal structure, right? And the decision slowness, we've spans in layers, the matrix-based design, these agile implementations, <laughs> and then simultaneously the onslaught of all these collaborative applications, you know, the slacks, the IMs, the increased use of email, you go down the list, right? And the consequence of that is we saw the amount of time people were spending in collaboration rise about 50% over the past 10 years um, to a point where pre-pandemic, uh, people were spending about 85% of their week on the phone, on email, in meetings, you know. And then that number just went up again through the pandemic, typically about five to eight hours a week, people working deeper into the morning, later into the night. And so it's a created a context where, um, we are always on today, both for work and home, and the collaborative time that we spend uh, is just something nobody's seeing, right? Companies can track these expense receipts down to two decimal places, but they have no idea where 85% or more of the time is going. They don't understand the collaborative footprint of the asks that they're making of their employees, and the, you could very clearly see that that many are getting crushed, you know, quite right. honestly. And I mean, right. from a performance standpoint and a, and a well-being yeah. standpoint, And so what really led to this book was kind of two things. One is I could see that about 10% of all the people we looked at actually were were, uh, uh, really thriving. And I mean, performing well and scoring higher on measures of engagement, career satisfaction, things like that. So it's not, you know, sacrificing performance for being happy. They were able to kind of pull both off. And so I could see there were some people that are doing things differently, right? That if we could learn from that, um, you know, that would that would be a, a fantastic thing. And then just kind of going through all these interviews as we slowly, you know, teased apart, what are these people doing? And then what are the other people not doing? The stories are unbelievable. You know, you start getting past this 10, 15 minute facade that we all put up and start understanding the pressures of all this kind of always on, um, uh, you know, set of expectations that it's just a big deal, you know, and, and, and it became, you know, really kind of personally meaningful <laughs> right. to me to say we, we need to be able to take some of these ideas that these people have figured out and, and kind of propagate them, you know, a little bit more. I don't talk to a client in any week, in any month for the last more than two years who isn't overloaded with work and now reaching an absolute ceiling of what they can tolerate. Right. The typical way, anybody who thinks somebody's not working is, just, I don't know what you're doing. I mean, you're not tuned into what your employees are thinking and feeling. But over and over again, it's get up early in the morning. And I mean, early in the morning is like six o'clock in the morning to work for two hours so you right. can get something done. Meetings from then 8 a.m. at best, sometimes 7 a.m., all the way through into the evening and what would normally have been dinner hour at a normal time. And I'm not talking at five o'clock. I'm talking about six to six 30, a break, maybe if we're lucky and come back at it at nine and work for another hour to two hours. There's no way that's effective work. It can't be efficient. And it certainly isn't good for any of our well-being. So no one should be surprised that people are stressed out and therefore acting out in ways because they're overloaded and, Performance has just got to take a hit with this. It can't be good. Right. right. And it's, you know, I think part of the, the challenge is, 
and, and we've done this all through humankind, right? As we see the problem to the tools we have. <laughs> so the tools we have right now are meetings, email, you know, these, and we're throwing um, these tools at the, at, the, at the problem of how do we collaborate more. And what I, I can see is that the people that are doing it better, they're far more intentional, mm-hmm. you know, around how they're building these connections, ways that they're, they're leveraging them. And then that's a really critical step that we all need right. to take. This is a really different paradigm. It's akin in my world to when we went into the process orientation of work with Deming, Duran, and others, and all the metrics had to change, right? And how right. we thought about ways work was happening. I believe this is very similar, you know, into this kind of networked, you know, more agile economy. But I mean, to your point, like the, the going through the pandemic, you know, let's just say they had eight one hour meetings pre pandemic. And that's kind, like you're saying, but the great idea that everybody had was, Oh, let's just shrink the meetings and jam more in. (laughs) So now instead of eight one hour meetings, we've got 16, 30 minute meetings. And it means people are more intense in the meetings, right? So cognitively you're drained a little bit more. You're switching across these things more rapidly, which again, drains us cognitively. And we end the day with the to-do list based on 16 meetings, not eight meetings. And so just tactically, just that single idea of how we're thinking about meetings as a coordinating device is, you know, problematic. I agree. I agree. I agree. I think that's a huge one. And when I give my typical hours, those hours from seven or eight o'clock in the morning for meetings until six or seven at night are meetings only. Right. Now we have to deal with what do I do with the things that I accumulated to get done or the real work that I'm supposed to be doing? And anybody looking at productivity in their company has to be worried about that. This cannot be good for yeah. flat out efficiency. Right, right. It's, it's interesting. And so, you know, early on and some of the work like software coding, people were seeing a bump in productivity, but it's not sustainable. You know what I mean? Or there's a, you know, a couple of other caveats with that. One is what a lot of the companies have seen is that the within group collaborations have gone up through the pandemic. So within your team, within your unit, but the cross group connections to other functions, other you know locations, other things like that, those have fallen off. And that's yeah. really a problem because those tend to be your key sources of innovation, right? Whether that innovation is taking a new offering to, to market or yeah. scientific innovation or things like that. So we're not going to see the impact of that probably for another 18 months, you know, in yeah. terms of people then saying, wow, you know, our pipeline's faltering or whatever, um, you know, that may be. So it's, it's interesting, you know what I mean, to think about that. And even if we did keep the productivity high, imagine now with the return to office stuff, way too many companies' expectations are going to be, okay, now that we got you working here, we're going to throw the two-hour commute back on you. Yeah, <laughs> you right. Know, days a week. And, and how's that going to work out right. <laughs> uh, to, to factor that in? Yeah, because there's an, uh, yeah, right. It's more time. And that's not, the number of meetings are not going down, nor is the efficiency of meeting time going up. So none of those I think we have tackled or thought about. All right. So hundreds of organizations that you've studied over a 24, 25 year period of time, recently intensive, the last 15 years around the collaboration increase. And you say, 85% of our time is spent on phone, email, or meetings, and that has only gone up, right? And only 10% of the population is actually thriving, meaning they're satisfied, engaged, motivating, feeling energized at their best, 
And those 10% must be doing something that's unique. You said it was intentional. So please translate. What are they doing that the rest of us are missing? Right. Yeah. So, you know, what I would first start with is when we were, we were running all sorts of regressions around um, what are the high performers doing, right? We use the network analytics and we would get separate performance data from the organization that may be mm-hmm. HR ratings, rapid promotion, revenue production. I mean, anything we could get our hands on. So the, the idea was not to assume a big network is a good one because we know right. that's not the case in general, um, but rather to understand what the high performers were doing. And so what we could see when we looked at all the collaboration analytics is they weren't distinguished by the size of their network, but by the efficiency of it first, right? And we could kind of plot these ways of looking at this analytically that helped me see those people that were giving the greatest impact uh, in these groups. So they were producing themselves and enabling others to be more successful and uh, taking the least amount of time, right? And so we started with that group of people. I call them my efficient collaborators. And I interviewed 100 uh, women and 100 men, right? The, okay. the, you know, I would find these people and then we'd go out and say, okay, what are you doing right on the margin? And that eventually evolved into a couple of other interview studies that I can characterize a little bit later. Um, but, but this piece alone was really geared to saying what these people are doing is not one thing. Um, it's not one idea of, you know, using email differently, uh, right, or things like that. What they tend to be doing is um, more akin to what I call a, a brawl than a ballet. They're just really persistent and dogmatic on ways of clawing back time. And they do it in three categories of things. First is how they put structure uh, into their work. So they're much more likely to strategically calendar Friday night or Sunday night with a one week and usually about a three month time horizon. They're much more likely to block reflective time or block time in a way that manages to their rhythm of work uh, as they go through a week. They manage role interdependencies. They just do a whole set of things that are putting structure into the work that's coming at them versus being structured by it, right? And Mm -hmm. And it's all on the margin, right? And again, this is what I mean about the brawl, not the ballet. It's not like these weeks always work out the way they planned, but over time, you know, they do. <laughs> and they're kind of pulled in a better direction. Um, second, they're better at managing these triggers that, that lead us to jump in when we shouldn't. And that um, was the biggest surprise for me. That tends to be um, far more impactful than, than people think about. And then uh, third is the tactics, you know, so they're Um, whereas a lot of people, for example, would look at email and say, I can't control email in its entirety, so I'm not even going to try. The efficient collaborators would come in and say, gosh, my team generates 40% of what I have to deal with, and we actually could influence that, right? We could talk about how are we going to use it? Are we going to, you know, use bullet points and not try to hide what you want in the eighth paragraph of a 10th paragraph email? Uh, Do we not send it at 10 o'clock at night. That may be when we have to do it, but we don't need to send it then to start the 10.02, 10.05, 10.07 responses and this always on mindset. And you find that just, you know, short conversations with the teams, uh, an hour, there's one hour long exercise I love that if teams do, they find five to 10% of their time right there, just in terms of setting norms on, on how they collaborate. Um, that that's kind of what these people are doing. You know, it's, it's on the margin. It's a set of practices that they really hone in on and they're persistent on, and they get about 18 to 24% of their time back typically, about a day a week compared to, uh, to average people. All right. So I have certainly heard this said by people who seem to have the best, I'm going to say, work, non-work balance in their life and seem to be in a good place with it all. I can't say that they're thriving necessarily, but they seem from the outside. (laughs) 
that they, uh, your word is intentional. It's the word I've always had them uh, have described about them too. They're very intentional what they say yes to, to what they say mm. no to, mm. to how much time they dedicate to something, to how much time is worth it, to what is somebody else's job is their job, to what they're going to, you know, kind of go along with, but not really object to and not really get engaged with either. Very intentional about the choices they make day mm. in and day out. Mm. Mm. And that's what you're seeing. Very much. Yeah. On, on many levels. I mean, just that idea of saying yes and saying no, like what they say yes to, what they say no to. Um, if I can, just for a second, like yeah. the, 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 what I call these triggers or these tendencies to jump in that um, cause us problems. That to me really caught me off guard because I was, again, I was sure the enemy was out there. And yet I found as I went that some people have this incredibly deep desire to help others, mm-hmm. right? They mm-hmm. see being a good colleague or being a good leader is helping directly and instantaneously. And sometimes when you're not even asked, you know, they mm-hmm. jump in and help and solve the problem. And that's a great thing, right? This is servant-based mindset to leadership. People love these people. Um, but today in these hyper-connected times, if you create yourself as a path of least resistance, at some point that's going to overwhelm you, right? You have to reframe how you think about it to building capability versus helping directly or you get overwhelmed, right? Um, But it all happens in this really small moment. You know, for me, it's a different trigger. For me, it's accomplishment, right? If I see a five-minute window of space somewhere, I will always try to jam 60 minutes of stuff in it and completely (laughs) ignore the three hours of email or communication I have to do to get others on board. And the problem is the issue doesn't happen to me in that five-minute window. It happens four weeks later when I'm grumbling about why don't these people get it. And that's really the nature of this game is that we lose sight of the fact that we started it to begin with, you know, (laughs) and and a lot of these actions that are more more in our control than we realize. And so in terms of that saying yes and saying no, um, being really clear on what's that trigger, right? When you jump and you shouldn't have, you know, is it a desire to help, is it accomplishment, is it status, is it fear, right? And seeing things as binary versus, you know, offering transparency into your demands and jointly coming to a solution. But it's super important, right? Super important to be proactive on that. Okay, so I want, yes, I think that's incredible. And I just want to hit the highlights again of the kind of triggers that you find. One is the desire to help. Somebody asks and I can help and I respond rather immediately because it makes me feel good. And then I end up being the default person to go to over and over and over and over again, even if that wasn't my intention. It's a way in which huge amounts of time. And I talk to lots of people who don't want to be mean, quote unquote, they say, by saying, I can't help you. Right. But they don't think of any other alternatives for how to do that. So that's one kind of trigger. A second time, kind of trigger, I think you used it, um, competency, which is I have five minutes. I have an idea. Let's launch it. I think I fall right in that trap, too, and way <laughs> underestimate the time it takes to actually execute. Right. So. Right. Right. Yeah. And it, and like I say, it kind of comes back uh, you know, to us over time, right? It's this... Yeah. Sometimes it can be, you know, for me, the quick thing I'll jump into is I'll see the possibility to write an article, right? And so I jump in, I got two or three people, we're excited, and then this thing can go on for a year, (laughs) you know, as you're getting it published and going through all that, the iterations. And again, it's, you know, it's a a starting point with me and part of it. (laughs) So it is, and sometimes I think that's a desire to do or a desire for the new, you know, I get excited about the new idea, but all of those drive you to do things that you shouldn't do. How does status become a trigger? 
A lot of times you see that with particularly engineering contexts or scientific contexts where people uh, developed a reputation for being good at something. And then as they progressed, um, being the person that knows about that topic area or client, right? It, it's not just those two domains. It yeah. just tends to be one of the more common ones. Um, they, you know, can be in meetings or following email threads or things like that. And they just interject quickly, you know what I mean? In a way that makes them feel good. And they, you know, kind of announce to people that that they need to be referenced, right? And, and kind of um, be, be pulled into things. So one of the things we really find about the more successful people is that they're really good at, progressively over time, having great clarity on where their unique value add is in a collaboration and then distributing the ownership more rapidly to others. And there's two things that does, right? It keeps the overload from happening on the person that that wants to be recognized for it all, right? Or kind of have that acknowledgement in the room and you get better engagement from those around you, right? Like they're bringing more, they're bringing greater effort, greater ideas, um, and so that's, you know, it's, it's, again, kind of one of the key things you see with people that pass by that. <laughs> so they get right. really clear on what's the truly unique, you know, value add I have in this context. That's so you use status and I would use the word expertise. So whatever your area of expertise is, if that drives your identity in the organization, then you're susceptible to stepping in whenever that expertise is called on and you can get called into more and more and more and make it less possible for the team that works for you to develop their own expertise and their own credibility because you are there. You're the go to person. Right. It's also giving me the idea here, Rob, you know, I'm a huge fan of the Hogan assessment um, and the motives and drivers part of the Hogan assessment will actually identify some of these triggers for you because they'll tell you the things that you are pulled to, whether it's for recognition or whether it's that servant or whether it's to be a belonging, a part of the team or the financial reward that comes from it. And if you know those, then I'm going to bet those are exactly the ones that define the triggers for where you jump in and you are to be careful about how much do I say yes to. Right. right. Okay. Last one I have to ask is how does fear create a trigger? Oh, I mean, in two ways, really, it's a great question. So one is just, and and this was a huge thing for me about just fear of what colleagues think, right? If I say no, am I going to be labeled, right? As a a bad colleague or a bad employee or kind of other things like that. I would hear people say the the day that they figured out the word no didn't have to be binary, (laughs) you know, that they could actually offer some transparency into the things on their plate and jointly determine, right, how do we solve this Um, and how do I prioritize, you know, just change everything for them, right, because then they weren't just taking things uh, on and they were doing things in a way that that gave other people say in in what, what they were up to. The other one is fear of missing out, right, and that, you know, is a... um, very insidious for, for people. They, they're absolutely sure this is the last opportunity that's going to come their way and they jump in and they grab it. And and again, a lot of people just can't stop themselves, you know? And so my, one of my favorite stories was this person describing to me that he, in this case, knew he did this and he did it constantly in ways that was stressing his marriage out and other things because he'd be working through the weekend. So he finally, they had an epiphany moment that he was never going to accept one more thing until he talked to his partner about it. Right. And he said, just that knowledge that this conversation was coming, (laughs) all of a sudden, all these things didn't seem as important. Right. It was just, you know, recognizing that, that um, this other, you know, piece of my life and also the accountability that's going to be there um, kind of stuff. And so he described turning fear of missing out and FOMO into JOMO, the joy, (laughs) um, 
there's a, and it was quite ebullient about it because, I mean, that's part of the problem. There's two things I'd, I'd say about this as we're talking about it. One is the problem with collaboration overload is it feels good uh, right up until it doesn't. <laughs> right, because of these triggers, right? We're satisfying these things. People are reacting off of us. We feel good. Energy's high right up until your significant other says no more. You lose a key employee or that last, you know, ask comes on you and it just starts to, to bring, you know, down. And so it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's an insidious thing right. <laughs> in some ways that you're, you're really trying to kind of guard against and see against early. Yeah. Yeah. And especially in businesses that are pulled by client demands. So mm-hmm. that need to always serve the client, to be there, to give one more for the client is going to make you susceptible to these kind of triggers to say yes. And then the pressure comes on your team. Right. And that may be fine until you start losing your team members, as we're beginning to see at a regular right. pace at the right. moment. Right. You're right. having said yes has consequences for all of right. this. So it strikes me on all of this that for people who have a hard time saying no in general, paying close attention to the triggers, to the fears that come up, to the desires that are met, to the you know, desire to be seen as a particular kind of person, whatever that is, paying attention to that and asking, why is it that I have such a hard time saying no? What's right. the need that it's meeting? Right. And then finding an alternative. Right. Right. For me, like the, the way it, a lot of times I'll say it with groups is most people have had the experience of being asked to do something. And, you know, the second that that person opened their mouth, you think this is not what I should do. Right. right. Every five of your being is saying, don't do this thing. And yet in the next minute, we have justified five reasons why we have to go do that thing. And the thing we knew just a second ago, we didn't want to do and we go do it. And so that to me is like one easy way to say, what is what's leading that? Right. If you've had that moment. You know, what is it deeper down that's kind of driving that? And then the other thing I would say is that what I can see about the people that are more successful at at guarding against these triggers are kind of two things. One is they always had greater dimensionality in their lives, right? So where people get in trouble is when life Mm -hmm. and work become the same thing. (laughs) And they've given up slowly, usually kind of mid to late 30s as things take off. They've fallen out of the athletic groups they were a part of, the spiritual pursuits, the music, the religion, the book clubs, comes from any and all walks of life. But as they lose that dimensionality, then their identity gets more and more crafted by who they are at work and vagaries of that, right? Kind of rise and fall and tend not to to um, kind of take courageous action against that. So one that I'm always saying, especially coming out of COVID, because that's what COVID's done to us. It's pulled us out of a lot of those groups too. Um, we're used yeah. to the stress from just the volume of work, but it's, it's that that's happened too. But coming out, always have at least two and usually three groups that you're persisting in because it, it creates a little better perspective, right? So that you see these things differently. And number two, the other thing I could see about the people that were better at fighting it off is they had incredibly clear um, goals around what expertise they wanted to use in their work in the coming five years. Uh, and, and we're really precise around this, you know, like I want to be doing analytics or I want to be doing innovation or whatever, you know what I mean? Really down at a level, not, not I'm trying to get to this role or this level. Right. Right. So expertise. And then what are the values I want to experience in my work? You know, that could be mentoring. It could be creativity. It could be scientific advancement. Yep. And when that was really clear, you know, the things that work and then a set of roles they want to play outside of work, then these triggers had less sway over them. You know, so the servant-based mindset, uh, one of my favorite interviews is a very successful Silicon Valley executive. And she said for her, this little mantra of saying yes means saying no. 
um, was what kept her from jumping in. Like she realized that it was really causing her problems. And, and that really had teeth in it when it was very clear on what saying no meant. You know what right. I mean? When the, when the things were really crisp and not just vague. Right. Uh, Right. The um, it's Michael Bungay Stanier that I know the question from. I don't know where he gets it and how many other people claim credit for it. But the question <laughs> is, if you say yes to this, what are you saying no to? Mm-hmm. And being mindful, the no to is and sometimes in my private life, it's sometimes right. in other parts right. of my professional life. It's sometimes no to my team. It's like, what am I saying no to by saying yes to this thing? I think is right. really good. Um, my other favorite trick is to say yes, if. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then you're negotiating for something you need. Yes, if you will do this other thing for me. So I've got a trade there that gives me more of what I want. Right. All right. So um, greater dimensionality in your lives, meaning keeping at least two or three groups outside of just work that you are pursuing, spending time with so that your identity is not 100% about work and being crystal clear about the goals you want to achieve in the coming five years, goals in terms of capabilities and expertise, as well as goals in terms of the values you want to experience. Mm -hmm. And I would presume constantly reflecting that. I echo what you just said, Rob, having your goal as reaching a particular level where a particular salary is probably the most disheartening goal I've ever seen anybody (laughs) try to pursue. As much as I know those matter, that can't be all there is if you're going to be thriving in life. Right, right. Okay. All right. This is a perfect time to take a break. So my guest today is Rob Cross. He's uh, the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College, a renowned thinker, as you can tell, on all sorts of things having to do with organizational design, change, collaboration, teams, networks, agility, innovation, talent, optimization. The book we're talking about is Beyond Collaboration Overload, How to Work Smarter, Get Ahead, and Restore Your Well-Being. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about what this top 10% of people who are thrivers and performers are doing. We want to talk about how you begin to break your cycle. And then we want to talk about, so what do you do with that extra 18 to 24% of your time that you bought back? We'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. 
Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement, and we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Rob Cross. The book that we're talking about is Beyond Collaboration Overload, How to Work Smarter, Get Ahead, and Restore Your Well-Being. I just want to quote a number from the very beginning from Rob's research, hundreds and hundreds of organizations, hundreds and hundreds of interviews, data analysis, network analyses, and we find is about 10% of the population is thriving meaning their performance is strong, their well-being is strong, their cognitive capacity is strong, their mental health is strong. 10%, 10%. So we have to ask, what do those 10% of people do that the rest of us are not doing? And three things Rob has identified. One is that they are intentional about the structure they put into their calendar so that they are controlling parts of their calendar rather than the calendar controlling them. Two is they monitor and manage the triggers, the tendencies to jump in, to do things that make us feel good in the moment, but that actually lead to overload at the end of the day, because we underestimate what it takes to actually do those tasks that we said yes to. And then number three is that they are, uh, I've forgotten what number three was, hold on, that they have tactics, specific tactics that they deploy, like a conversation with a team on what are our norms about how we want to use collaborative tools, what do we do, what do we not do, a variety of tactics. So if those are the three big categories, Rob, what I want to know is what does the average normal human being out there working for a manager who hasn't read your book or listened to this podcast, what should we be doing? What should we be thinking about? So I think um, the the first thing is I think there's a lot of ability to control um, how we engage in work in ways of um, engaging in collaborations that help buy time back. So, you know, one very easy thing that it doesn't really matter, you know, how sophisticated or not your manager is that I find people get great success with is they'll look back in their calendar um, four months, look back in calendar and select email trails. And what you're looking for is, you know, what are the routine things that have crept around me? Uh, over time. So you're saying, where are the routine informational requests coming to me that I just don't need to be the one answering anymore? You know, four or five years ago, that made sense. But in the moment, I keep answering these things and the days go by in a blur and this all feels more efficient. But when I actually look at it and have a device to remind myself, 
of what these things are. There are four or five categories of things that I should create alternative go-to people on, right? Or I should be stepping away from. And so the, the email and the calendar is just a device, right? At the heart of it, because our minds aren't geared to remember the small, right? right? We think right. of the big things and those usually are the most intractable and the things that you can only delegate to the same person you delegated the last three things to. It's the small things that enable you to do a little bit of what you were saying earlier. You isolate out and don't go to your, your favorite people, but the next layer out in the team or the, the talent you're trying to cultivate and you shift some of those things out there. And then suddenly you're taking the demand off yourself, right? And also bringing in talent on smaller activities that start to build their capability, right? Real simple thing. It, it tends right. to kind of accrue time back. And so there's a ton of tips like that in the first half of the book, right? And all right. these categories that that we're, um, uh, that we're talking about. But what, what really st- struck out to me as we went through this, and even in the discussions with the publishers, I kept saying, we can't just teach people how to buy time back, right? That efficiency piece is a part of it. But if that's all we do, then we may end up in the same thing that's just happened with COVID, right? We've moved from the eight one-hour meetings to 16 30-minute meetings, and we're worse off, right, than, than when we started, because we're just doing the same things faster. And so a real emphasis in my work was to also understand um, from these top performers, and this is across now over you know, 60 very well-known organizations, I was asking them to provide you know, uh, five of their most successful women, five of their most successful men. And in these studies, what I was really looking for was not the efficiency gains and how that was happening, but more, I would anchor people on, tell me about your career-defining accomplishment. Right. What was it that you did at some point in your career? Maybe there's a couple of them, but at least one that really put you on this upward trajectory that built a name for you and started you kind of moving in the direction you're in. And then I said, what I could care less about is what you did. Right? I don't care what you did. What I really want to understand is the network uh, around you, the, the interactions that helped you mm-hmm. see the possibility that helped you then supplement skill gaps that you had that helped you um, scale what you could accomplish, you know, all these little subtle things that, uh, again, our minds aren't good at remembering. You know, the right. funny thing in that is every time I would ask people, I would set it up exactly that way. And they would say, I got one for you. And they would be off and running. And they would tell me a story for five minutes that had nothing to do with other people. You know, it'd all be about what they did. And I, I just said, I don't care what you did. I want to know, you know, the other people. And, and it's not an arrogance. It's just that we forget. Right. We don't have the mind to remember, you know, all these small interactions that that shaped things. And so when I went at it that way and we were building out their success on timelines and other prompts that help people remember what I could see is that the more successful people were spending about 20 to 25 percent more time exploring possibilities uh, in their network. So they were the ones that were reaching out to people in another functional area, other geography, sometimes other organizations, and just exploring, right? And saying, well, what could we do if we work together? What are the possibilities of packaging what we know? Uh, What are the complementarities? Things like that. So it wasn't a form of networking that was, I need a job, right? Mm -hmm. I need you to help me figure out how to get to the next level, right? Um, And it wasn't tapping an invisible power structure. It was just kind of laying this foundation for when an opportunity comes by, um, here's a set of people that I could mobilize to actually produce something bigger than I could by myself. Uh, or if I just turned to the same three people I did the last 10 times. 
And at the heart of it, that's what the second biggest predictor of the high performers, right? It was never a big network. It was a more structurally diverse network. But what they would do is they spent time seeding these relationships, understanding what's possible. And then when that opportunity came, it may be to write a piece of software code. It may be a consulting you know, partner opportunity, uh, maybe a financial transaction. They were producing something bigger, right, by virtue of reaching back into their network. They literally would see that possibility differently, um, and they would produce something bigger, and they were doing it then in a way that also built their network, right? So suddenly these people were bringing them opportunities too. And I thought that was the coolest thing, right? <laughs> because it's, it's thinking about, you know, this network again, not as a political act, not as a social act, not as an invisible power structure that nobody has access to, it's just a different way of collaborating, right? And, and um, at the heart of it, that's, you know, why the, the freeing time piece matters first, because it, this takes time, right? But if you, if you do it right, then you start to be able to push back more. You're accomplishing bigger things and, and you start an upward spiral. If you allow collaborative overload to creep in on you, what do you think the first thing is you stop doing, right? You right. stop exploring, you stop right. reacting expansively right. in the moment. And so there's a real interplay, you know, between the first half and the, and the second half of the book that, that kind of lines up that way. I do routinely in the classes that I run, one of my favorite exercises is to ask people about these career defining moments. I ask them about turning points, transition points that really catapulted mm. you to a new level. Same idea. And I always ask about confidence, you know, because it was a mm. risk. It was an out of the comfort zone moment, almost always. And so how did you keep your confidence up? Mm. And I always ask who was there, who helped you? Who, who gave you, who's supporting you, where is the ideas and the so on coming from? And those two are tightly tied in my experience, exactly as you just said, that it's the people in my network that fill the skill gaps or that see the, the problem differently or that I know will come and back me in one way or another, up, down, and sideways, that give me the confidence that I can do this big stretch job. Because I kind of know who to call. And what you're saying is people spend 20, 25% more of their time exploring the relationships, the possibilities, not the smoozing, talking about possibilities. How could we work together? Right, right. And that to me is a real kind of absolute goal in it because we would see this works across dimensions of difference too, right? And it actually is the thing that seems to be a way of kind of moving ahead, kind of getting engaged that seems to... Uh, work, you know, across categories of people, let me say it right. that way. So it's right. really um, cool. And I, it's interesting because the, the last 200 interviews I did, one of the key things I was asking people about to what you were just saying was, you know, tell me times of extreme growth in your life, right? Mm-hmm. And that could be growth outside of work, or it could be growth, you know, in work. And there were kind of two things that, that I found there. One is, um, they all started with trusted relationships, mm-hmm. right? That, that were built in very precise ways. Like people mm-hmm. didn't think about it this way, but I would always talk about, okay, how did you get that opportunity? And they would say, oh, it just came or I applied to it. No, no, no. How did you get that opportunity? And kind You're of right. back and back right. and back. So you kind of get down to this idea of, okay, it was this person that saw a possibility, created room for me. And then I would be, okay, how did that relationship form, right? And almost always it was people, number one, positioning their expertise against a need. So it was authentically seeing here's something that needs to be done. And there was an authentic, you know, authentic is a really key piece to this. So they weren't trying to get their stuff. They were saying this, you know, something that's good for the organization, whatever. Um, Then they were building what I call, you know, everybody does competence-based trust. So they were really good at helping people trust in their capabilities. 
And by that, I mean, they weren't, we all have, I believe we all have trust as a bit of a blind spot. We trust our own capabilities and we don't sometimes provide enough evidence for others to do it. Right. So rather than, than them say, I can do this, they would be more likely to say, here's you know, a piece of code I wrote before, a prototype, right? And how do we use this? And so it totally changes the dynamic of, can I trust Rob to, oh my gosh, look what's been done. What do we do with this? And right. it, 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 in not a, not a manipulative way, it just changes the conversation. It starts to build trust in that person. So I would see this over and over again. It was situate the need, build competence-based trust, deliver rapidly. So there's an integrity-based trust, you know, or dependability that's in there. And then over time, get off task. So benevolence-based trust is built. And that those connections, you know, often forged um, the, the kind of the biggest growth opportunities, you know, for people. But one of the fascinating things for me is when people were describing situations when they were promoted maybe two layers up, you know, somebody left and right. they were the ones selected, so many times people needed somebody around them in these interviews to say, you can do this, right? To see their capabilities as transferable in a way that they weren't seeing, <laughs> you know what right. I mean? In the same yeah. way. And it was usually these people, right? It was yeah. the people that they kind of built trust with on, uh, on those fronts. <laughs> it's, it would be an interesting analysis to take um, some of our best, most admired leaders, I will say, uh, at the top of organizations and ask about their career trajectory. And I will bet that some of these very early moves that really put them in the ranks that were ultimately from which they could make a play at a larger role comes from exactly this dynamic. And mm-hmm. I think it is not unique to one gender or the other gender or to ethnicity mm-hmm. or to mm-hmm. any other aspect. It's down to being this relationship with a person who both sees the opportunity and can give you opportunity. And you earn that by your basis of trust, the competence, Mm -hmm. the delivery, and the relation, ultimately the relationship trust that you build. And I found so much of what you were saying earlier about like the people that were targeting the next layer, next level, like there's some industries like banking, you know, sometimes consulting that that's really embedded, you know, in the, in the fabric heavily. But I found the people that were, genuinely more happy and they were doing more work they wanted to be doing. It was more this organic, you know what I mean? Kind of leaning into this capability, building a reputation. I mean, they literally were crafting their future in ways that I think is really cool. Like, I don't think we've ever had the ability to, you know, manipulate, not manipulate, but to adapt what we do and who we do it with and today. And, and yet too often people give it away. You know, they're, they're shooting for, you know, right. kind of goals that, that aren't necessarily great. Well, concrete example today, I was talking to someone, not U.S., um, in Europe, who saw an opportunity largely to distinguish themselves from the masses and goes into an area that at the time was important, but nobody was really thinking about, which was how do we do advertising in social media? <laughs> and becomes a specialist in social media and advertising. Mm. And lo and behold, did that largely as a distinguishing factor and curiosity, sure, but mostly a distinguishing factor saw the opportunity. And today, that person's career is kind of catapulted, shall we yeah. say. <laughs> but it's against that opportunity and need and vacuum. And I have some skill set and let me dig in and figure it out. Okay. Right. All right, let's turn to the task of managers. Suppose I'm a manager 
Okay. And I got a load of work to get done. And I probably don't have enough team members to actually really get the job done. And the fear from every manager is if I give any slack among my team, that they're not going to, I'm going to be in worse shape than I am. It's going me burning the midnight oil, getting it all done. What's your advice to managers to make sure that we keep team members that are thriving, efficient, effective performance, so high levels of performance, and therefore probably more likely to stick around and do great things? Yeah. So, I mean, just so one one thing we see in general, and I, we wrote about it in the book, this showed out over 23 years. It started with one of the blue chip consulting firms where they came and said to me, you know, Rob, I don't think our high performers are slightly smarter. So you pick the the, the consulting firm that you think has a reputation for arrogance and you've got it. <laughs> and, and I kind of laughed at that because they kept telling me how smart everybody was. And that's so why I was saying, yeah, 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 um, because I wanted to do my study. But then they they said, I think that what distinguishes the people that really succeed is they create energy or enthusiasm around them or buzz, they were calling it. And, and the partners want to help them out more. Their peers, you know, bring them into opportunities. The teams give greater efforts. The clients want to buy more. And a lot of this had to do with um, being, you know, what, what I've come to call an energizer. Right? Somebody that creates enthusiasm. And um, what we saw there, was it was four times the predictor of a high performer, somebody that got and stayed in that upwardly mobile category across 23 years of doing this and hundreds of organizations from very different settings. It's consistently the, if not second biggest, usually the first biggest predictor of uh, a high performer in those contexts, which is really unique. You can manipulate a tremendous amount of things in a lab study, but to see that, you know, kind of in the wild across so many different places is a really, you know, strong predictor. And so basically what those people are doing is exactly what you're saying, <laughs> you know, is how do, how do we kind of create a context that other people are energized around? And it's not to be leaders, right? I see, you know, first year people that are really good, <laughs> excuse me, at positioning their ideas in ways that, that creates uh, other people's energy. So that's one person we're always looking for. We can see when we run these analytics that the energizers, they just get greater impact. Others, people want to work for longer, the force with longer, and it's not celebrating every idea. You're likely to see them disagree as agree. They do it differently. They don't say that's a bad idea. They say, given where we're trying to go, here's an alternative. So they're separating the critique from the person exposing their thinking. But there's nine pretty specific behaviors behind all these analytics. We've done interviews to see, you know, what is people doing. And they win over time because they, um, they get greater scale, basically, in their work, right? Things flow to them. People give greater effort. And they just do better <laughs> over time compared to the same level of person that may be on the fringe of, uh, uh, of those networks. So, you know, that's one thing is to kind of think about, you know, are you engaging others in ways that creates their enthusiasm? Uh, one easy thing to do on this, um, I see with the more successful leaders, is they are systematic about maintaining their one-on-one time. But at least 50% of that time is off task. Right? It's not walking through a to-do list. It's understanding what's that person's aspirations, you know, where are they going, what are the skills they're developing, those sorts of things. Um, and you know, when that person has that understanding and they're also good at shaping the nature of work coming into the team uh, on the march, sculpting it, getting ahead of the demand, not in crisis mode, then they have a really good ability to line up on some level work coming in with what people care about. Right? And, of course, they're going to do better over time. Right. Um, they're going to get people stay with them longer. They'll get better performers and kind of good things happen, right. For, yeah. for those individuals. So, um, so that would be, you know, the, the idea I'd have it, at the heart of it is, are you taking more than you're leaving <laughs> and then thinking <laughs> carefully about, you know, those behaviors around that. And it's, 
again, last thought quickly here is it's tied intimately to that collaborative overload idea, right? The, the first thing that, you know, you stop doing when you're overwhelmed is you stop exploring and you stop thinking expansively in small moments. The very next thing you stop doing is thinking about how do I come into these situations in ways that creates others' enthusiasm for what I'm okay. up to. And I mean at work or home, <laughs> you know, you come in with your to-do list of things and, and you start to lose that, you know, that, that kind of scale benefit too. So, Okay. Well, it strikes me that what you're saying is if you just took, kept your one-to-one time, you kept your exploratory network, ideas, generation, what could, how could we work, what could happen? We keep that time. We keep the understanding in our one-to-one time that 50% is not on the task. It's on where this person is going and what they want. And then I try to shape something about the work that's coming in. Who wouldn't want to work for that manager? And I would bet odd that it's a fairly inclusive culture by current standards of inclusivity. And I'll bet, you know, it's a team you want to be part of because everybody's pretty engaged and, 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 right? Who wouldn't want to work there? So nine things, and you've just given us a couple of them. I love it, Rob. All right, we have just a couple minutes before we close. And I can't close without asking the question about gender differences, Mm. You find some differences between men and women in their uh, their work. Give us a two minute summary. Yeah, so um, we we definitely find, for example, that women absorb more of the collaborative demands uh, in these networks. Analytically, we can see this, and so what that means is that, in particular, for uh, women, it's important to be thinking about how do I create these efficiencies, these collaborative efficiencies, or you will, you know, potentially end up in situations where there's a 10, 15 percent anchor in your work, you know, comparatively speaking, right? That that people aren't necessarily seeing. So the the question is is, you know, what do you do about it? <laughs> and and in part, it's um, it's kind of changing the norms and the expectations around you, right? And, and such that there's certain, you know, asks or tasks or kind of maintenance, you know, activities that tend to fall towards women that stop, right? And you find ways to kind of structure that out. But another part of it is equally important is that women systematically, you know, it's a gross stereotype. So I hate to say it, but it shows up in the data. They're, they're more likely to fall into that servant based mindset, the the desire to help, right. And to jump into situations. Mm -hmm. So it also becomes important to think a little bit about, is that my trigger? You know what I mean? And am I, you know, what, what am I potentially um, causing there? So, I mean, that's one important thing. Um, another that we see is that women are more likely to persist in relationships over time. And there's a huge strength to that in the sense of kind of returning to past clients or, you know, maybe getting you know, team members back together or things like that. Uh, there's a liability if the, the, tr- the nature of your work, the velocity of the work is changing faster than you're changing your network. Right. And, and then that's going to you know, result in situations. We know that people tend to falter if, you know, they they're or they start, for example, one easy way is when they get promoted, they continue to hold the 60, 70 percent of their trusted ties back where they came from. Right. right. So right when they need to diversify who they're they're listening okay. to, they're not doing that. And and so that's a you know another challenge. On the positive side, um, women have far more diverse networks on other dimensions, right? Of, of kind of who they turn to. Whereas men tend to turn to one person for everything else. They're great reaching for help on work, but not the reverse. And and so there's a huge downside to that, right? In right. terms of kind of well-being and and um, resilience, you know, over time. Right. So there's uh, kind of trade-offs like that. There's a lot more nuance behind that, but. <laughs> 
It's interesting. I see women fall into two broad categories. One is this desire to help, so therefore they don't say no. And you can see where the collaborative overload comes from, from that one, coming from a good place. But I also see women who are so self-protective of their time and quite tense about doing the right things, getting ahead, all of those good things, that I suspect they take more energy than they actually give. I don't think it's intentional, but I think it's a consequence. So it's interesting. You could get whammed on that one either way as a female. And how to balance that, how to navigate that, how to think about it, how to change it is you know, worthy of deeper consideration. Very much. So one of the things we find is that um, in this energy piece that women tend to be slightly better energizers in places um, with the exception of the women to women interactions. <laughs> and so it's, it's intriguing, right? Like what's the dynamic that, that kind of causes that, um, that little nuance there, you know, and, and whether it's the protectiveness or other, you know, other elements that, that come in. <laughs> we could debate about that for a really long time and we would be here for much further than an hour. <laughs> so good on that topic. We're out of time. So my guest today is Rob Cross. Um, he's a professor at Babson College. The book we have been talking about is Beyond Collaboration Overload, How to Work Smarter, Get Ahead, and Restore Your Well-Being. He's also the author of The Hidden Power of Social Networks. Um, I think what is most fascinating to me about this one is just the observation about intentionality from the people who are thriving, doing the best, being the best managers, maintaining the best teams, their qualities about intentionality, both in terms of controlling their calendar, controlling their time, be careful not to say yes to too many things or to the wrong things. But there's also intentionality about how they energize other people and intentionality about how they interact with their team in a way that makes sure they understand what each person is looking to do and to develop. And I love your statement that we're going to be thinking about what are my goals what are my goals for what I expertise and skills I want to acquire in the next five years? And my, what are my goals in terms of the values that I want to be experiencing? I think those are just, those are massive examples of wonderful things to be doing with our time and how to buy back time. Rob, thank you for being a guest. It's a oh, pleasure. Gosh. Thank you so much. It's always a treat. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you've enjoyed our podcast today, please like us on your favorite podcast server. If you'd like to know more about how to apply this concept and others, please check out our new subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. And otherwise, we'll see you next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.